Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Day Zero Podcast. I'm Spectre with me as Z. Uh, I'm back for this week. Apologies I wasn't on the show last week. I was feeling pretty terrible. Uh, I'm still not feeling great, but hopefully well enough to carry through the show without any issues. Apologies, though, if you do suddenly hear me mute or something. Uh, I still do have a bit of a cough, so I'm going to try to, uh, you know, keep that out of the audio stream as, as best as I can. Uh, but yeah, so we'll we'll jump into our topics for this week. Uh, we do have kind of a last minute ad as our first topic, which is a humble bundle uh, it seems another security humble bundle has been uh, published, and Z spotted it. I haven't really taken a look too much at it yet, um, but there are some books in here that I recognize. So, um, yeah, this one's coming from Wiley. So the last bundle we covered was uh, No Starch Press. Wiley's another fairly reputable security publisher. Um, they're also another one that commonly does these security. Bundles, the third company that kind of does something is Pact, who we generally don't recommend. Wiley, though, yeah, th there's there's some good books in here. Web Application Hacker's Handbook is a classic recommendation for web stuff. The Portswigger Web Academy, so the handbook here also comes like from Portswigger or people behind Portswigger. Um, the Web Academy was their thought on upgrading the book, so the Academy is more up-to-date, but the book is still solid and covers a lot. It feels a lot more comprehensive in terms of methodology and process. Um, doesn't necessarily have all the latest techniques included but or and attacks. It's still a very good book. Um, applied cryptography and crypt cryptography engineering to classic recommendations on crypto. Um... They're old, like, Applied Cryptography is, like, first published in 96, I think. And Cryptography Engineering, I think, more recent, 2010. I'd recommend Cryptography Engineering over Applied Crypto. Um, Applied Crypto is just... I think Bruce Shiner has even commented that a lot of developers end up taking that as a way to take these algorithms covered in the book and just sprinkle them into their code, not really understanding the entire protocol and everything else that needs to go into it besides just using the strong crypto code. Uh, so cryptography engineering's his attempt to rectify that. Um, Tribe of Hackers is kind of cool, especially if you're new or wanting to get into the field. So there's a few of them here, the Tribe of Hackers, Red Team, Blue Team, Security Leaders, and I think, yeah, just the first book, no subtitle. They're basically just Q&A with security professionals. Questions about getting into it, comments that they'd want to give somebody new, things like that. You can take a look, see if it, any of them interest you, but they're not, not bad books at all. Oh... Um, on the professional front, threat modeling is a good book. Also, one of the few actually about threat modeling, not about actually covering all of the attacks, but on thinking about what type of threats an application or deployment may face. Practical reverse engineering is... I mean, I don't do a lot of recommendations on reverse engineering, but that's usually my go-to book recommendation. Secrets. I actually... Um, uh... I actually have that book like on a shelf. So yeah, um, it, it's a good book. I like the fact that it covers like x86, um, 64 arm and window stuff. Um, like it's 
And it's generally, as the title goes, a little bit more practical focus than something like Secrets of Reverse Engineering, which is, I think, the more traditional recommendation. Yeah, Practical Reverse Engineering seemed to have a good, like, uh, overall coverage. Um, it didn't go quite as deep, I think, as Secrets of Reverse Engineering did, because Secrets of Reverse Engineering is a pretty big book. Yeah. Um, and it goes pretty deep into Windows stuff, if I recall. But, yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, I, I don't think it does it's the best on a particular like architecture or operating system, but for like a broad overview, um, I think it does a good job. Yeah, I'd agree there. Um, malware analyst cookbook kind of falls into that same realm as practical malware analysis. Um, I think it's a few years older yet. Uh, things have definitely changed since 2010, but at the same time, I mean, things like setting, setting up, a honeypot or your lab and writing yar or using like process monitor debugging hooking like those things haven't changed that much there's still a lot you can learn out of that similar note on art of memory forensics things have changed but there's still a lot you can pick up out of the books especially like um a lot of the core concepts haven't changed even if some of the technical details have um Social Engineering, Science of Human Hacking. I haven't fully read it. I see it recommended for the social engineering side of things. Same deal on Unauthorized Access. It's one of the only books on physical pen testing. I've seen it recommended a number of times, but that's not really my area to recommend it myself. Um, and yeah, the couple of Mitnick books, I think, are the other ones that stand out to me. There's a very uh, interesting mix here. Um, like, usually there's a pretty good mix in these Tumble Bundle book deals where there's different topics covered, but I don't really remember if there's been one that's had this much of, uh, like, different topics. Especially, like, there's a good deal of focus on cryptography, um, but also, like, some of the physical pen testing stuff and, like, art of memory forensics. Um, just some books that I don't really remember seeing covered before in, like, previous bundles, so... Um. I think they'd have been Maybe. covered actually in the last Wiley bundle. There's a lot of repeats here. Like a Is lot there of them are. Okay. Yes. Um, just the Wiley bundles are generally a bit more repetition. I mean, there are definitely some new ones. Um uh in this bundle, I can't point out exactly which ones they are, but Yeah. Fair um, enough. I mean uh, Maybe I just uh, misremembered some of these books from before, because there have been quite a few like humble bundle security yeah uh, bundles by this point so yeah it's like... easy to mix them up and forget which ones which books were included and which ones weren't yeah i feel like the wily ones usually have a bit more of a broad appeal or like different topics um out of chat uh uh bthrx uh however you say that uh mentions that the pen tester blueprint starting a career as an ethical hacker is a new book or newer one so and that's also one i can't comment on yeah i was just taking a quick look at it when i saw him mention it in chat um seems, seems to have a focus on like some of the education side of things and certificates so um which is a question that's brought up often in security circles so that could be an interesting read. Yeah. Um, they do have, uh, it is worth mentioning also, these uh, books in the Summer Bundle deal, they do have a preview PDF that you can view um, just to get a sense of, you know, if the book covers kind of what you want. Uh, the sample size isn't huge. It's like five pages or something, but 
Um, I did want to call that out if, if you were kind of interested in some of the books and wanted to see maybe what some of them included. But yeah, I mean, we always like to shum, uh, shout out the Humble Bundle books, especially when they're um, some of the higher quality brands like Wiley. So yeah, we, we managed to uh, squeeze it in this week. But yeah, with that out of the way, we'll get into our topics of the week. Uh, our first topic here is a uh, chain of a file inclusion bug and an arbitrary file write, or rather a file write, I should say, uh, bug in CentOS web panel. Uh, first up, they talk about the file inclusion bug because that's kind of the bedrock for the whole chain. Uh, without that bug, you can't really use the second one in a very useful way. Um, so the researchers at Octagon discovered an interesting bit of code in the uh, loader.php and index.php pages where through get parameters, it was possible to pass a scripts variable which would get used to construct a file path to a PHP file that gets included. Now, obviously, that's a pretty big sync to have. You know, being able to include PHP files is a pretty powerful primitive, and generally, you shouldn't be passing variables into those paths. Um, and what they found was interesting here, too, is the developers do try to secure against, like, an LFI um, by trying to prevent directory traversal. And the way they do that is they run the parameter through stir i stir, which is basically a case insensitive stir stir check, and they check for dot dot, um, which seems like a very flimsy protection, and it is, because for obvious reasons they were able to bypass it here. Um, but they do at least like seem to consider it as an angle that an attacker could abuse, they just don't secure it well enough. Um, so they look at some ways to try to trick that, that stir i stir function. Uh, they first tried looking at like getting other characters treated as a dot in the include that wouldn't be seen as such in the stir i stir. That didn't really work out though. Um, they also tried finding some unique characters that would get processed as a dot when converted to lowercase um, for the case insensitivity um, portion of it. That also didn't work out. Ultimately, what they were able to get working was uh, making PHP think that there weren't consecutive dots by putting a character in there that didn't effectively do anything um, but would change the comparison, right? So it would change the string length. Um, that character was a null character. Um, so by passing dot percent zero zero dot, for example, functionally it would be a dot dot in the include, but it would evade that sir i sir check. Um, sir i sir would also skip processing that null character, but it still counts it as part of the size, so it sees it as a different string. Um, they were then able to use that LFI to register their own API key, to get full access without any authentication. The second bug was after they installed their own API key, they were able to access this endpoint called add server, which would take a DHCP string and write it to a text file um, in the resources folder. And using that, you could get PHP written to a file, which you could then rechain again with the LFI to get a full RCE, right? Um, you could just put a reverse shell script or whatever in that file, you include it, and then you're good to go. So I thought that was kind of interesting with the idea of, you know, chaining the LFI to get the um, the authentication and then chaining with it again to get a full RCE. I thought that was kind of a cool um, aspect of, of how the attack worked. But yeah, overall, I mean, the issues were kind of memes. So, yeah, I wouldn't I had to include this one just because of the fact that this was a, you know, an include statement with a PHP bar like, yeah, that. That used to be a lot more common than I think it is today. I mean, it's still out there today. It's still bad code, and it was back then. Um, 
since you mentioned the chaining the LFI to the RC, that is kind of an older thing for, quite literally, used to be called just LFI to RCE. Um, and if you Google that, you can come up with a number of different things, like other tack vectors that I've seen used on that are um, uh, using, like, uh, so PHP session files uh, are are by default written out to disk, um, usually in, like, temp somewhere. Um, so if you know your session ID, you can predict what the session file name is, and if you can control some data that's written in there, you can put your PHP code there, or, like, the database files if it's running on localhost. Like, once you have this sort of include of any file, you can often find some random place to get PHP in, um, and get code execution from it, just given how PHP only looks for the PHP tags, and it'll open, like, a binary file, and run that binary file if it has the PHP tag in it. Yeah, the mixed content uh, is, like, a, a, a useful part of it. Um, I, I did think, like, using the DHCP string um, with bad server, though, was... It wasn't really a place that I would expect... Um, you to be able to just pass arbitrary PHP, but I mean, well, you know, it, it works it's, out, and it... it's ultimately just passing any any sort of file write could be used anywhere you have write access to a file as long as you can. Get PHP For sure. in. I mean, as an admin, they're probably not expecting you to be attacking yourself either, so you know, softer insides to attack. Yeah, yeah, it kind of makes sense. So we'll get into our next topic here, which is uh, from Asset Note and uh, is a post auth SSRF in VMware's Workspace One Access, uh, formerly known as VMware Identity Manager, um, which is a Java based application for providing single sign on and multi factor authentication and whatnot. A lot of the first half of the post is Asset Note explaining their methodology a little bit um, and about like how the endpoints are declared. Um, and the controllers are structured for the servlets based on the Spring framework, since that's where they focus on. Um, the approach they took here was basically a sync-to-source approach. So they look for any interesting functionalities, in the case of SSRF, something like uh, use of HTTP clients, and then they trace them back to an endpoint to see if that can be reached. Um, they did eventually find a sync in the form of um, get status from remote host, um, which would create an HTTP client and send this authorization header uh, which contains a signed token. They eventually discovered this function is eventually called from the instance health endpoint. Um, and this endpoint has three important parameters, a host name, a path, and a data center ID. The host name and path get combined together to form the final URL of where that HTTP request with the signed token gets sent. And while they do do some whitelisting on the host name and some checking there, the path is completely unrestricted. So you have that old trick of being able to a set of whitelisted host name that would pass validation, but then using the at symbol to set it to a domain that you actually control. Um, it's been a little while since we've seen that trick being used. There was a point in time in the podcast history where we were, I, I feel like we were covering issues like every week that kind of abuse this trick. Um, but then it, it kind of died off for a little while, but you know, it's reappeared in, in the show. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's just kind of that classic issue of having multiple parameters, but only validating one of them properly. Yeah, exactly that. Um, like I said, it's a classic technique for getting that SRF, even when some parts are 
are being validated. I mean, and it kind of comes down to doing that validation on the actual URL string that's generated rather than trying to just validate the parts. Um, like performing that a little bit later, having that happen. Um, I mean, you could still have the parser differentials, which we actually just talked about during the last uh, Bounty podcast. Um, you could still kind of have that, but at least trying to validate it at that very last step before it's being used would probably be a better route than trying to just validate all of the components going into it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, not really too much to that issue. Um, and it, it is like a, a post-auth um, SSRF, so the impact is a bit limited there. But um, still, you know, a pretty good write-up. And uh, it, it seems like the, there is, like, this is a pretty complex application structure. So, um, yeah, and you know, I they, they kind of had to go digging for this issue. One other thing to note here is that um, with these requests, there was an authorization header containing the JWT. Um, so basically making this out to an attacker server would include the authorization header disclosing the admin token. So even though it's post-auth, just including like an image, since this is all with a get URL, they use the admin token, could be exploited by embedding an image in HTML, which points to this page and then you'd be able to get the admin JWT with it. Yeah. Uh, next we'll move into probably my favorite uh, topic of the episode because it's a crypto issue in the form of insecure AES key generation in the management software for Telenot complex alarm systems, which is apparently used a lot in some places like Germany. Um, now the issue here is pretty simple, despite the fact that the post goes into a lot of detail on the reverse engineering of the code here that's running on the alarm system device. Um, they also talk about like the crypto scheme and the IVs and where it's being used and stuff, but that's not really super relevant for the issue. Basically, the problem is uh, when they generate AES-128 keys for exchanging encrypted challenge codes for doing like authorization between an NFC tag and the alarm system, um, they do two really naive and insecure things. Um, for First of all, they use the system's current Unix timestamp to seed the RNG, which is not a super secure seed. It's it's very predictable. Um, the other thing is the RNG is also not a cryptographically secure RNG source. So when you combine those two things together, um, it severely limits your entropy of potential keys, right? Um, I think there's like 82,000 keys per day or something po of possible keys. Um, which sounds like a lot, but it really isn't when you're talking about brute force. Um, and then the it thing turns... is, that's per per day. I mean, as per long day. as you know yeah. roughly what time it is when it's being generated, time is only using it to the seconds, so not even going down to micro or milliseconds. Um, Rand is completely predictable. If you know the seed, it generates the same values um, every <laughs> time. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's... It's a common mistake to see because if you look at a lot of code about like, oh, how do you get this random data? If you even see them seeding randomness, it'll be seeded with time most quite frequently because that is a very easy thing to seed or to use as your seed. Um, obviously, ideally, you'd be using a cryptographically secure random generator because you're doing something that needs to be cryptographically secure. You're doing crypto. Um 
source of entropy. I mean, micro time especially can be so. It depends on how long you need it to last. It's not the most ideal case, but sometimes you're restricted on your source of entropy, and so something like device boot up time can sometimes be reasonable, although the challenge with that is then if you can detect a reboot or cause a reboot of the device, you then know the exact time, so those aren't perfect either, but you see time getting used quite a bit for seeding it, and there's always issues with that. Yeah, it's kind of one of those problems where for most use cases for random, it's good enough, um, but if there was one case where you wanted a secure seed and a secure RNG being used, it's when generating encryption keys. So, um, yeah, it's just, just kind of a miss there with not securely initializing randomness for the key generation. So, yeah, because of that, uh, where an AES-128 bit key would take an impossible amount of time to brute force, um, where there's predictable RNG being used and it's relying on Unix timestamps down to the second, um, the entropy for the potential keys is vastly reduced, and it's practical to try to brute force, at least offline. Um, they do go into a bit of detail later on where brute forcing for online remote access is a little bit tougher because they have some rate limiting in place. I think you can only try like um, 10 times, and then it triggers like a 150-second lockout or something. So, yeah, online it's a bit trickier to brute force. Um in that case, you could try like 4,800 keys in a single day, and there's 86,400 potential keys in one day. But like Z said, I mean, as long as you know the rough time, it's it's pretty practical. And even if you don't, it's still pretty practical in the offline uh, portion of it. So, yeah. If you're interested, the blog post goes into verifying those assumptions and proving the problem here with how they were able to brute force the keys for the NSC tags and whatnot. They also talk about some of those other routes that it could be abused, like the remote access protocol. Um, it's kind of funny there, too, because for the remote access protocol, they they kind of require three secrets. Um, they require the management AES key, the key ID, and the user password. But the key ID is hard-coded to 12345, and the user password is just a six-digit code. So even the other secrets for the remote access protocol are not very secure either. So... The AES key is kind of the strongest thing in that like chain of credentials, and that's what they're attacking here. So, um, you know, they don't really have anything else to rely on for that. But yeah, th this blog post is very detailed and goes into some of those other routes. Um, but yeah, the, the main problem there is just the insecure use of random in encryption. And like you said, it's it seems to be a somewhat common problem, um, and just. I don't know, isn't really thought about too much, I guess, when doing things like key generation for whatever reason. I mean, I don't... It is a common issue, especially when people who don't really understand crypto are trying to implement crypto, you know, for the first time or something like that. Then it's definitely common. It's common to see this code. At the same time, like, if you were to leave it to somebody who maybe knows what they're doing when it comes to crypto and using like a, a more appropriate library that implements some of these things and just gives a very easy to use interface to it. They likely wouldn't be making these same sorts of mistakes. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's common and it really shouldn't be, I guess is really what I want to say on that. It's, it's not like it's a subtle issue. This is something that if you're scanning code, you can very easily detect 
Like, I mean, I used to um, grep just for, like, default uses of Ren and then look how it's seated uh, when doing, like, code review because it is that common, but it's also that easy to detect somebody's doing it wrong. Like, there's a ton of static analysis tools that will call this out. It is a little weird because, like, in this, in the case of something like this product, it is literally an alarm system. Um, now that said, like, there's there's probably not many people out there who are going to, you know, try to do a crypto attack against your alarm system to break in. Um, although they do point out, like, you know, if this is being used for, like, a company or some high-value target, this kind of attack could absolutely be an option. But it's just, it's always weird to me when you have these products that are, you would think they would be built with security in mind. But it's clear that there's not even, like, a standard code review process in place. Because, like you said, if there was, then this would have been caught, you would think. So, yeah, I've, um, I've stopped being surprised by how companies that you would expect to be thinking about security, because they do security, don't. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, it's kind of the it, great irony. It's a fair industry. point, but yeah, I, I've stopped being surprised by I At the same time, with an alarm... Um, you can also think of it as almost an IoT device, so then we shouldn't be surprised about the security. That's true, actually. Fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, uh, we'll move into our last topic here, which is a multi-factor authentication bypass in Box, uh, which is a cloud content management and collaboration platform. It's also very popular. Um, it's used by like the USAF and a bunch of like Fortune 500 companies, so you know a pretty significant target to look at. Um, the attack here is based on the concept of mix and matching different modes of multi-factor authentication, because with Box, you can authenticate uh, with kind of two main methods. You can authenticate with an authenticator app like Authy, you know, time-based uh, one-time password, or you can use SMS if you set that up on your account, which is obviously a much less secure option, but it is an option that they support. Um, and with SMS, once a user logs in and is prompted for MFA, they have a session cookie sent, um, and then they're navigated to a verification form where the code is sent to SMS and the user is prompted for it. The problem is, uh, first of all, that session cookie is sent and set regardless of if the user navigates to the SMS verification form. Um, and that session cookie can be used for time-based uh, one-time password apps like Authy. And there's not even any validation if the victim is actually enrolled in TOTP verification or not. And there's no verification performed on whether or not an authenticator app um, or like a code from an authenticator app actually belongs to the victim account. So you can kind of do this uh, confusion where you can post a factor ID and code from an attacker box account and verify against the victim session cookie to gain access because there's, there's no verification on if there's like an attaching of that, code to that account so yeah and uh, the other in my opinion like on this vulnerability i don't really see the issue as being the fact that they're mixing mfa modes now that's kind of what they call out as being the issue they're mixing it i feel like the issue is really the fact that um when an attacker tries to log in um that totp process isn't validating the Factor ID. So what the factor ID is, is basically when you register your TOTP, you're going to, it's going to register some secrets that it stores so it can generate what your TOTP thing should, basically the information that goes in that QR code you scan. Um, it has some secrets in there. 
it's going to track that. And the fact that they don't validate that the factor ID that you're using to log in um, belongs to the currently logged in account, that feels to be the case that's missing. Because it's like they're checking, is this uh, TOTP correct? But they're not checking, does it belong to the right user? I feel like that is the core issue here and not the fact that you can mix and match between the two. Because there are other places where it's like you have multiple 2FA or MFA options available to you and you choose which one you want. So being able to mix and match doesn't feel like an issue to me. It's the fact that they don't actually verify ownership of the one you use. So you log in with the victim account, so you need to know their credentials, and then you use a factor ID that belongs to somebody else. Um, and they just don't validate. That's where I feel like the core issue is. So I kind of agree, um, because, you know, like you're saying, if it wasn't for, like, if they were validating the victim and the, or sorry, the account and the, like, one-time password were linked, then this wouldn't even be exploitable. That said, I think there, it is worth calling out the mix and matching of um, the ability to mix the MFA options, just because... There could be some other issues, depending on how the code is structured. Um, whenever you start mixing authentication flows, it can get very messy very quickly. I mean, we, we've seen some vulnerabilities in past episodes that have been based on that idea. So I I do think it, it's worth calling out, but I also agree that it's not the crux of the issue for this particular attack. I mean, I actually think they should allow multiple options here like i guess if they only have the app and sms maybe not i think if you have the app don't even bother having sms enabled but uh beyond that like because there are other options for M mfa such as uh like emergency tokens that you might print out or having an actual hardware token that you might want to have like yes i've got a hardware token but it's not on me right now so let me use the application instead and thus having different sorts of authenticators on your account like i feel like that should just be part of a good login system it does introduce a bit of extra complexity in a sense but so does having it split up like this anyhow oh, so like, was... I'm, I'm not saying that they shouldn't support multiple authentication options i'm just saying they should have them split into their own paths instead of being you know combined into this kind of master system where either one can be used on the same like authentication flow or the same page. Um, I'm just suggesting... Well, they are different pages. Okay, um, but... Sorry, maybe I shouldn't have said page. Maybe that wasn't the best way of framing it. Um, like, attaching it to the same like session information, I guess. I don't know. It, but you have it to is let kind the user choose problem. at some point, so... Yeah, I see what you're saying there. It is a bit of a tricky problem to solve. I don't know. I, I feel like it could have been done better, but without some additional context, I guess, of how it's structured, maybe that isn't something that I should be saying, really. Yeah, I guess. My so. feeling is, as long as they're validating it at the point of the actual attempt, uh, making sure that belongs to the account they're actually logging in and stuff, I don't see an issue anywhere else with adding in that complexity, personally. Although maybe in a future episode I'll have to... Uh, rein that statement back a bit as you point out why I'm wrong and we have a vulnerability in that area too. Yeah, without context it's hard to really say. Um but I you know, as soon as you start 
throwing in this added complexity, as you said, of trying to support these multiple flows, um, it problems open up. Like I said, we, we've seen it in the past. So yeah, and I yeah. called out like this idea when you're in this half authenticated state, like there are often issues that can arise there too. Um, just because you are only half authenticated at this point, like you're somewhat logged in, you have that session going for you, like you're not completely authenticated because you haven't done the MFA. Um, yeah. So like that introduces some complexity on its own too, which is where I could imagine more issues coming than just from the support of different MFAs. Yeah. But um, I'll also say that I thought this... Like, I think this is a great bug. Like, I love this type of issue. Um, this was actually my favorite report from this episode versus the crypto one that was yours. Yeah, I mean, I have a bias. I'm just really interested in crypto, so that that's kind of yeah. why that happened. But yeah, this attack is is certainly cool, too. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, a good place to wrap up that topic as well as the episode, because uh, we don't really have any more topics to cover for today. Um, so thank you to everyone who tuned in. The VOD will be available on other platforms like YouTube tomorrow. Um, you can also find previous episodes up on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Anchor. Um, feel free to join our Discord or follow us on Twitter for when we go live. Links for those are down below or also in the chat. Um, tomorrow, we'll be back with our binary episode at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific for anyone who's interested in those kinds of topics. And uh, we'll see you all then.